If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with an acute obsession of true crime, caught discussing tragic events with unwilling participants, or kept awake at night by the paranormal or just plain absurd, you've found the right place. All others, beware of catching this dangerous bug as we begin to talk about the facts. friends and welcome back for another episode of let's talk about the facts and you know us by now we have an intro so i'm not gonna tell you anything about us because i don't want to so i am the captain of the ship elizabeth fury and with me today is a new face a new friend and her name is leslie so tell us about yourself leslie hi everyone um i'm leslie grant and I am a new up-and-coming voice actor, or uh, voiceover artist, so to speak, and um, I'm really excited to speak with you all today. So um, I'm a big geek, I'm a big nerd, I love everything Buffy, video games, all the above. So there you have it. We're going to have to do the Polybius conspiracy theory with you. It's a video game conspiracy theory. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you anymore. But just <laughs> keep that in your noodle. Okay. We'll do that episode. Oh, no. It involves the FBI. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like Vaughn. So longtime listeners know Vaughn from several episodes, and he is such a big chicken. And I started this episode about aliens, and he just goes, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I want to take back my chicken status and say, bring it on. Excellent. (laughs) Isn't that, like, the last thing people always say before they get attacked by ghosts and spirits, though? So maybe I should tone it back a little. I don't know. Like, I saw the Myers-Briggs personality thing where it was, like, most likely to survive a horror movie. And my personality was most likely to make it to the end. And I was like, done. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I would leave all y'all behind. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm going to have to look up mine. I know. I'll have to find it. Okay, If I find it fact friends i will tweet it absolutely yes. so speaking of tweeting this will make sense at the end uh today we're doing our second patchwork episode Woo! Um, i have put together 15 badass native american heroes from this past century because i feel and perhaps you feel this way too leslie <laughs> that when we were in school we are not taught contemporary native american heroes at all nope like we maybe hear about sitting bull we maybe hear about crazy horse or geronimo we definitely hear about sacagawea yep i was like i was waiting for that one (laughs) yeah i know i was like we got that one she's on a coin (laughs) not mad about that yeah um we hear about the very very wrong telling of pocahontas all the time oh god uh, <laughs> I mean, it is one of my favorite Disney movies, but oh god, <laughs> oh god, it's wrong. Like that is the biggest fiction of all time. So much wrongness. Um, but we never really hear about contemporary Native American heroes that we can look at and say, "Oh my god, that's so amazing that you were able to do this." As you know, we do look to contemporary black american heroes or latina or latino or latinx um american (laughs) heroes etc etc asian american heroes um so 
because fuck Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. We are going to celebrate Native American heritage by talking about 15 badass Native American heroes that are more contemporary and lesser known. So um, some people may be like, of course we know them, but did you know that they were Native American to some degree? Or they're going to be like, oh, yeah, we know this person. They're very well known. Well, guess what? We're going to talk about him anyway. <laughs> um the reason we're not doing a fuck Thanksgiving episode is because Vince Schilling did a very fantastic TikTok. We retweeted it on our um, Twitter. Please take the time to go watch it and support Vince Schilling because he does amazing work. He does amazing videos um, on YouTube and on his own Twitter about Native American history and correcting incorrect correcting incorrect what a way to say <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow uh we're doing great <laughs> basically like telling the true story of certain native american like what white america thinks is true he's like nah this is how it happened <laughs> he has a fantastic video on the true story of pocahontas and i highly recommend um viewing that so with that being said, we're going to jump into our first badass Native American hero. And I am certain that every single person listening to this knows some dude who's got a picture of this man on their wall. So first, it's James Marshall Hendricks, also known as Jimmy. Yes. Yes. Did you know that Jimmy Hendricks was Cherokee? Well, no. part Cherokee. I honestly know. Yeah, it's actually, like, recently that his um, family has really tried to make a point. But he was actually very proud that he was a of his grandmother, who was one-quarter Cherokee. Um, he often spoke very proudly of her at a time that, you know, many people really didn't do that. So he's one of the many African-Americans that have claimed to Native ancestry. So, quick thing about Jimi Hendrix for those of you who don't know I bet you there's a lot of people who are a bit younger than myself um Leslie I have no idea how old you are so we're just <laughs> gonna roll with myself uh, <laughs> uh who may not know like some of the things that he's famous for so we're gonna go for it uh Jimi Hendrix was an American musician singer and songwriter his mainstream career spanned only four years that's it yes <laughs> wait what <laughs> yep and he's widely regarded as one of the most influential electric guitarists in the history of pop music and one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century so the rock and roll hall of fame would describe him as arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music so the songs Voodoo Child, Hear My Train A Comin', Easy Rider, The Wind Cries Mary, Hey Joe, and of course Purple Haze are yep. all songs easily recognizable from the Jimi Hendrix experience. So Hendrix was the recipient of several music awards during his lifetime and posthumously. In 1967, readers of The Melody Maker voted him the Pop Musician of the Year, um, and in 1968, 
Billboard named him Artist of the Year, and Rolling Stone declared him Performer of the Year. Mm. So Disc and Music Echo honored him with the World Musician of 1969 in 1970. So, like, you know, backwards. Right. And then Guitar Player named him Rock Guitarist of the Year. So the Jimi Hendrix Experience was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, in 1992. I was oh. alive for one year. <laughs> that was the year I was born. So now everyone knows I am 28. So <laughs> I'm 29. So okay, Kelly nice. and I are twins. Usually. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> you so all now know we're now. on the same level. We're on yeah, the same level. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> I was like trying to think, how old? Hmm. <laughs> Let me do this math. This is hard. Right. Uh, oh, and then in the UK Music Hall of Fame of 2005. Mm. So, Rolling Stone ranks the band's three studio albums, Are You Experienced, then Axis, Bold as Love, and Electric Ladyland, which honestly, I want to name my house that. Um, that, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Among the 100 greatest albums of all time, and they ranked Hendrix as the greatest guitarist and the sixth greatest artist of all time. So, part Cherokee and... We proudly stand a legend. Yeah. But he did pass away in, I believe, 1970. Yes. In mm. 1970. So, you know. So the second one is uh, Louise Erdrich. She hmm. is an American writer, novelist, poet, and writer of children's books. Featuring Native American ch- characters and settings. She's an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Cool. A federally recognized tribe of the Anishinaabe. I had this earlier. I practiced every single one. <laughs> and now you get here and you're like, oh my god, I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. And, I, th- I think it was Anishinaabe also known as uh, Ojibwe and Chippewa. So nice. she's a Chippewa author. Um, so Erdrich is a widely acclaimed as one of the most significant writers of the second wave of the Native American Renaissance. Hmm. So in 2009, her novel, The Plague of Doves, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for oh. fiction and received an Ainsfield or Annisfield I thought it was Ainsfield. Wolf Book Award. <laughs> Wolf Whoops. Book, though. That's an epic title. Dun, 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 dun. Um, so in November 2012, the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction at the National Book Festival in two, uh, September of 2015. Oh, did I skip one? I did. I, re- I skipped a line. I skipped a whole ass line. So in 2012, she got the National Book Award for Fiction for her novel Roundhouse, which is the sequel to The Plague of Doves. Oh. And then she got the National <laughs> or the Library of Congress <laughs> Prize for American Fiction at the National Book Festival in September of 2015. You and got was this. the 2013 recipient of the Alex Awards. Sheesh, Louise. <laughs> I should have said geez, Louise. Oh. But you have so many awards. Yeah, lots of stuff there. That's awesome. Ah. 
But she is the owner of Birchbank Books, a small independent bookstore in Minneapolis that focuses on Native American literature and the Native community in the Twin Cities. And I hope she is selling online because I'm going to tell all of you to go buy a book from her because keep that open during the pandemic, please. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to go do that now. Actually, that's a perfect present for my mom for Christmas. That well, guess happen. what? I'm going to tell you about two of the books that I've read of hers that I loved so, so much. Ooh. So, A Plague of Doves, the one I mentioned, mm -hmm. it's a 2008 New York Times bestseller. Wow. And the first entry in, like, a loosely connected trilogy. So, The Plague of Doves follows the townsfolk, folk, folk, townsfolk, <laughs> I say the L, townsfolk, of Pluto, North Dakota, who are plagued by a farming family's unsolved murder from generations prior. They know how to get me. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> from what, from, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> She's like, I know how you love murder. Yeah, I was like, from what I know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the novel incorporates Erdreich's multiple narrator trope that is present in other works, including the Love Medicine series. Its sequel is the National Book Award winning novel, The Roundhouse. And then Erdrich concluded the justice trilogy with la rose in 2016 so incredible book i have not read the sequel or the prequel but the first one is exceptional and i have mm. read it two three times now but i also mentioned love medicine and that was the first book i had read by her so i can't not tell you what the summary is so love medicine <laughs> was her debut novel, and it was first published in 1984. Um, Erdrich rever rev revised, which I should do with my words, <laughs> and expanded the novel in subsequent 1993 and 2009 editions. So I read the 2009 edition. Okay. Uh, the book follows the lives of five interconnected Ojibwe families living on, a fictional, living on fictional reservations in Minnesota and North Dakota. So it's a collection of stories in the book that spans six decades from the 1930s to the 1980s. Love Medicine garnered critical praise and won numerous awards, including the 1984 National Book Critics Circle Award. So go check those books out. They're really good. Like, uh, she's yeah. a delightful storyteller. Um, Ooh, I'm excited to go look those up now. Don't worry. I'll tweet about it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to move on to our third person, John Harrington. So John Bennett Harrington of the Chickasaw Nation is a mm. retired United States naval aviator, engineer, and former NASA astronaut. No way. Yes. What? Nobody knows about these people. I know. Well, now they do. Oh, my gosh. I'm so They excited. just have to listen to this episode. Yes. <laughs> In 2002, Harrington, with an E, by the way. Okay. Uh, Harrington, like the fish, <laughs> became the first enrolled <laughs> member of a Native American tribe to fly in space. Ah! That's so cool. I know. You know what's funny is like I've spoken about the first uh, black man to go into space, the first black woman, and now the first Native American. Oh my gosh, the trifecta. Ah! <laughs> I have to find the first Native American woman to go into space now. Yes. They just happened to be in, like, my random context years. And now I'm like, all right, 
Where's my first Latin? Where's my first, you know, Chinese? Let's go. Let's keep going. Send people to space, y'all. <laughs> um, first idiot in space. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> I haven't gone yet, otherwise. Oh, my God. I was waiting for it. I was like, is she going to say something? Because <laughs> if you didn't, I was going to about me. So, Just saying. First idiot duo in space hasn't gone yet. Um, yeah, let's do that. But we will. <laughs> okay, so Harrington was selected for a mission specialist, as a mission specialist for STS-113, the 16th space shuttle mission to the International Space Station. So the Endeavor was launched from the Kennedy Space Center on November 23rd, 2002 to deliver the PI Trust segment. Don't know what that is, but you know, you science nerds, just <laughs> scream about it because, wow. Uh, but it pro apparently provides some sort of structural support for the space station radiators, amazing. The Endeavor also delivered a new Expedition 6 crew to the station and then returned to Earth on December 7th, 2002 with the Expedition 5 crew, and it ended that crew's six-month stay in space. No drama, wow. no film, amazing. So... <laughs> The total mission was 13 days, 18 hours, and 47 minutes. So during that mission, Harrington performed three spacewalks. Count it. Uno, dos, dos tres. Trace. Oh. I almost said trois because I took... <laughs> Un, deux, trois. <laughs> I took Each trois, Nissan. But, like, <laughs> I interchange them all the time because I work with uh, a lot of Spanish-speaking coworkers, which is awesome because, like, mm -hmm. you know, my Spanish is getting better. But then, like, I'll interject French, and I'm like, I fucked up. <laughs> I done fucked up. <laughs> Literally. So oh his spacewalks totaled 19 hours and 55 minutes. That's wow. a lot of time in space. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Okay, so side note, I recently just saw somebody post something on Twitter of a bunch of people, like, walking on the moon, and it was in fast motion. But it was everybody like watching these people try to like walk and jumping around and falling on their faces, but sped up. So it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Oh my god! It was so good. I hope it was set to like one of the greatest like vaudeville songs of all time. Oh, that yeah, that was an opportunity missed. You know, it's okay. I'm still here. I can always change the audio, <laughs> <laughs> download video. Um, oh. So his spacewalks were commemorated on the reverse of the 2019 Sacagawea dollar coin. Ooh. I know. Now i got to go get one and collect it. Yeah. I don't know what for. I think it's just like to have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in July of 2004, which is after he went to space, he also served as the commander of the NEMO, the N-E-E-M-O. What? Sixth <laughs> mission. <laughs> aboard the Aquarius Underwater Laboratory, living and working underwater for 10 days. Why what? is this guy so cool? Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know nothing about his personal life. I hope he's great. But, like, he retired from the Navy and NASA in 2005, nice. which I think he's two years older than my father. So, legit, that's a great time to retire. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure he's, like, I've, I've done it. 
Look, I went to space. I went to the center of the earth. What else is there? I'm busy being a legend. Yeah, for real. I'm going to give TED Talks for the rest of my life and peace out, you know? <laughs> so that's John Harrington, everyone. Check out his photograph because he is the happiest looking astronaut I have ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. Okay. Now that I've told you about him. Um, was there anything else that was, like, really cool about him? I don't think so. I mean, mean, he probably discovered Atlantis, but, you know. And kept it to himself. Yeah. he should. (laughs) There was also, um, so, oh, we're going to number four. So, Ben Nighthorse Campbell. Um, He is, so he's still alive. Nice. (laughs) Just making sure you heard the difference. Um, (laughs) An American Cheyenne politician who served as a U.S. House of Representatives representative. That was a really redundant sentence, Elizabeth. (laughs) Um, from 1987 to 1993, and a U.S. senator from Colorado from 1993 to 2005. He also currently serves as one of 44 members of the Council of Chiefs of the Northern Cheyenne Indian Tribe. Um, that's their official name. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh. It was all capital. <laughs> um, during his time in office, he was the only Native American to be serving... In the U.S. Congress. I think that's really, like, interesting to know. Yeah, absolutely. There was somebody. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, not enough. Not nearly enough. But somebody. As we pointed out last episode, which I'm not certain if you've heard yet, um, as of this recording, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. We need more work. We need more representation for Mm -hmm. Native American people in Congress and in every level of um, government from city to county to state. Mm -hmm. And having a single single representative and a single senator, that's not enough. Nope, not at all. Not at all. That's... It's a start, but... Not and it's enough. a stop. Yeah. <laughs> Hard stop. Though I do believe that there are other Native Americans. I think it's women, which is fantastic, um, currently in Congress. Nice. So this one, I kind of stepped a little over the line of 100 years. This is, <laughs> but she's so cool. So Susan LaFleche Picot, or it may be Picotti, um, so she's 1865 to 1915 from Omaha, uh, from the Omaha tribe. Okay. Uh, maybe both. <laughs> so she's a Native American doctor and reformer of the late 19th century. So oh. she was widely acknowledged as one of the first Native Americans to earn a medical degree. She campaigned for public health and for formal legal allotment of land to members of the Omaha tribe. So she was a social reformer and a physician. Like she wanted to discourage drinking on the reservation Mm. where she was a physician. And that was part of the temperance movement at the time. Um, But also like how it was going with health because tuberculosis was rampant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was at the time was no cure. And it was part of the public health campaign that she was working with. Uh, She also worked to help other Omaha uh, basically, like, navigate the insane bureaucracy that is 
the U.S. government. And <laughs> I love that you changed your tone when you said that. <laughs> that is the U.S. government. <laughs> Which is a joke right now. And it's been a joke. Oh, good Lord. But it, I mean, like, especially at this time, there was the Office of Indian Affairs. Mm-hmm. And they deserved to receive the money owed to them for the sale, quote unquote, of their land. But, you know, beyond the temperance movement, um, I'm going to say Picote. Even it's P I C O T T E, so it might be Picotti, but I feel like Picot's right. I don't know. Yeah, you do you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna say she. Okay. She worked on public health issues in the wider community, like including school hygiene, food sanitation, and just efforts to combat the spread of tuberculosis because in that time it was kind of their pandemic along with influenza Mm -hmm. um so there was like the whole like don't sneeze on people don't cough on people like cover your cover your mouth you fool well that's you know i feel like i've heard that some somewhere and they're like um excuse me i get the right to sneeze on you and you're like i have the freedom to do to sneeze in your face okay i got the freedom to slap the crap out of you (laughs) that escalated quickly did it though (laughs) no no, I guess not. I think it escalated backwards. I've got the freedom to give you a deadly virus. I've got the freedom to harm you. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, anyway, so she served on the health board of the town of Walthill and was a founding member of the Thurston County Medical Society in 1907. Hmm. She also was the chair of the State Health Committee of the Nebraska Federation of Women's Clubs which I kind of loved. (laughs) Um, But as the chair, it was the first decade of the 20th century. As the chair, she spearheaded efforts to educate, like, people about public health issues, particularly in school, because as we say, education is everything. Like, if people didn't know that this public health issue was an issue, how Mm -hmm. are they going to combat it? Like, if you don't know that you need to blow your nose when it's full of snot. Are you going to do it? Yeah. Maybe not, you know, or are you just going to leave it there and be all crusty and yucky and be that nasty person in class who just goes, <laughs> Oh, all Jesus, the Jesus time Christ, don't do this to me. Oh, okay, sorry. Triggered. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but really it's the worst thing. It's like, I'm trying to learn here. Even if it is math, I'm trying to learn it. I know. It's like, I, dude, I got to take this test. Like, shut up. Oh, good Lord. <sighs> I know. <laughs> And sometimes the simple sounds just, like, will set you off. You right? Know? And you just want to turn around and slap a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. Some- <laughs> I'm with you. Okay, cool. <laughs> but, like, I turn around and, like, slap them with my eyes. You know, that, like, the eyes communication of, like, yeah. if you do this one more time. Oh, then blood's happening. I'm oh, Something's happening. Yeah. You don't want to find out. <laughs> ah! So, obviously, Susan is much nicer than me. Because she decided to educate the people. <laughs> and decided to Instead of eye slapping? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> you made me ugly laugh. <laughs> um, but she believed that the key to fighting disease was education, which, mm-hmm. unfortunately, Susan, a hundred years from now, that would not be the truth. Oh. Um, it was then, I think. Oh, no. But, we've you know. We regressed. We, we regressed. 
But from her time in medical school onward, she also campaigned for building a hospital on the reservation. And when it was finally completed in 1913, it was later named in her honor. Oh! It was the first privately funded hospital on a reservation. That's so cool. Okay, so this one, you're going to have to buckle up. But I think out of all of them, this is my favorite just because, like, I don't know why. But I, I think this guy's the coolest. And I've known about him for a long time. But I think he's the coolest. As in, like, might be one of my heroes. Uh, so oh, Ira sorry. Hayes. Ira Hamilton Hayes. Ooh, I love cool. the name Ira. So I know. I, just, I worked with a lion named Ira. And he was just, yeah, he was amazing. So A lion? Yeah, I, I used to, yeah. It was, that's a long story. <laughs> Another episode. <laughs> I used to train animals for movies and television, so. So we're going to have an episode on that. (laughs) But Ira Hamilton Hayes, he uh, was born in 1923 and died in 1955. He was a Pima, P-I-M-A, Native American and a United States Marine during World War II. He was an enrolled member of the Gila River Pima... Indian Reservation, which is located in Pinal in Maricopa counties in Arizona. Oh my gosh, Maricopa. I'm just always going to remember Maricopa. Pourquoi? Oh, because of the the election on TV. They always talked about Maricopa County. Yeah. I don't know if we're allowed to talk politics, but that's, it was literally everyone was saying Maricopa, Maricopa, Maricopa. And I'm like, oh, now I know. I know exactly where that place is now. (laughs) (laughs) I know too much about uh, the counties in Arizona. So there we go. Nope. That's delightful. I love the fact, I love those kind of tangents where you're like, I know where this county is for this stupid ass reason. I know. It's like my friend in Canada was like, I think I know more about the counties in random states than you guys do now. (laughs) Oh, that's absolutely true. Right. (laughs) Like, I don't. I do my best with where New England states are. Like, I get it when they're separated. But when you put them together, I kind of forget which one's which. I, yeah. Like, I know the shape. But, like, when they're all together, I'm like, oh, fuck, where's Massachusetts? <laughs> I know New York, Massachusetts, Maine, easily. Oh, I can always find Maine. Maine's the best. <laughs> like, please ask me where that is. Oh, but, but the like, rest, Delaware? Yeah, a hot mess. <gasps> Wait, okay, there's those two that, like, make up a square, and they're like, inverse of each other and no I, clue yeah, okay isn't like <laughs> something i know okay i'm gonna stop again yeah that's bad i was like i can't help you sometimes i do that in the midwest too like if i see just the shape i know the the state because you know that's how the flashcards work <laughs> but if i had to fill in a map oh i'd be like oh. flyover country I don't know. I live <laughs> I in California. Friend, right? Well, one of the really weird things is I had a friend from Boston, and she was telling me how when they were doing, like, geography quizzes in, like, seventh or sixth grade, that they always had problems marking on the map where the states in the West Coast were. And I was like, there's, like, five of them. Like, what is it? Why is that hard? There's three, technically, that make up the, the West, West Coast, Coast. Right? And then I'm like... Okay, well, with us, us normal people, we had problems trying to figure out that cluster of hot fuck mess. Like, Because yeah. when I was that age, I grew up in the South. I was like, I got the West Coast, I got the South, because they're big. Yeah. I kind of got the Midwest. It gets a little hinky around the Great Lakes. <laughs> hinky. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, my God. Okay, speaking of. Tangent. Hinky. Yep. <laughs> We're going back. We're going to start from the beginning. Good. Ira good. Hayes. <laughs> 
Yes, Ira. Okay. So Ira Hayes. He was a Pima. Oh, wait. We already talked about that. Uh, Pima Native American. So he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1942. He volunteered to become a paramarine. He oh. fought in Bougainville and the two Iwo Jima campaigns in the Pacific War. Oh. And he had the nicknames of Chief Falling Cloud or just Chief. That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool because he was a paramarine. Yeah. Oh, like, man. Can you imagine that's... looking up and screaming, Oh, Chief Falling Cloud! Yeah. Oof. But also World War II was hell and so, like, sad. But yeah. Hayes is famous for, or generally known for, as one of the six flag raisers immortalized in the iconic photograph raising the flag on Iwo Jima no by way. photographer Joe Rosenthal. Yep. As soon as you said that the flag, I was like, oh my god, he's one of them. That's so cool. Yep. Um, so it's technically the second flag that was raised because there was a fo- photograph of the first flag and mm-hmm. it was too small and blah, blah, blah. So... After the battle of getting that flag back up, Hayes was in the photo, and two of the other men were identified as surviving the second battle. They were all reassigned to help raise funds for the seventh war loan drive. So in 1946, after his service in the Marines, he was very critical in revealing the correct identity of some of the Marines in the photograph. Okay. But... He also didn't feel very worthy of his fame. Um, He suffered from PTSD Mm -hmm. and did end up descending into alcoholism. Um, He did attend the dedication of the Marine Corps War Memorial in Arlington, Virginia, which was modeled after the photograph of Hayes and the five other Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima. Mm -hmm. Um, But after a night of heavy drinking... In 1955, he did die of alcohol poisoning and exposure to the cold. Oh, man. He was buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery in February of 1955. Wow. So he is an absolute hero and legend. Mm -hmm. But it just shows that, like, World War II is absolute hell on people. And even though he is immortalized... And I think it's fan-fucking-tastic that this great American icon, the Marine Corps War Memorial, mm-hmm. has a Native American man in it. Yeah, that's and nobody really talks about that at all. Oh, I know. Well, you know, we don't talk about that in history. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's why I wanted to bring him up, because his he's so important like he helped identify some of the marines in the photo who um didn't make it out of that battle and that's so devastating and like my own father is a veteran and there's so many things they can't talk about Mm -hmm. and so um some other cool things about ira hayes is that his story was immortalized in the song The Ballad of Ira Hayes, which was originally by Peter Lafarge, but it was subsequently covered by numerous artists, including uh, Johnny Cash, oh. who took it to number three on the Billboard Country Music Chart, uh, Chris Christopherson, Pete Seeger, and Bob Dylan. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then Ira Hayes appeared as himself. In the 1949 John Wayne film, 
Sans of Iwo Jima. I didn't know that. I didn't what? know that's actually him playing him. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Um, so in the 1960 telefilm The American, he was played by World War II Marine veteran Lee Marvin. Uh, Tony Curtis played him in the 1961 film The Outsider. He was played by Adam Beach in the 2006 movie Flags of Our Fathers, mm. which was directed by Clint Eastwood. Kind of thrilled about that because Adam Beach is actually Native American. Oh, sweet. And the boot, the booby, the movie <laughs> based on the 2000 best-selling book of the same name by uh, James Bradley and Ron Powers. So Flags of Our Father. Yeah. That's um, cool. The poet, I know. I wish I could stomach watching war movies more, but I just, they, they, like, I can't watch. Yeah. They're so hard for me to watch. There's some that I can and some I can't. And that was one I could not. And mm-hmm. also I, yeah, there's, there's a lot in that one that I'm like, hmm. The only war movie that I can think of in recent years that I was actually able to watch was 1917. Yeah. I watched that one. Um, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Super good. But it was really difficult to watch yeah absolutely um and world war ii movies especially like i won't watch civil war movies because i think that's just gratuitous violence Mm. um but my my mom's a history buff she graduated with a history major from college Mm -hmm. and her specialty is civil war so she like always talks about the civil war movies and stuff and we we, i grew up watching glory with her and stuff i do like like that one that's a good one yeah but, yeah, I agree. They're so hard to watch. It's just, like, I don't know. What's the point? Like, mm-hmm. okay, we get it. We lost. <laughs> we all lost. Nobody won. Oh, yeah. Um, But, oh, the last thing on Ira Hayes mm-hmm. is that the poet Ai Agawa dedicated her poem, I Can't Get Started, to Hayes. And he is uh, mentioned in the poem, uh, Petroglyphs of Serena by Adrian C. Lewis, and he's also mentioned briefly in the book Code Talker by oh, Joseph Bruhock, and mentioned multiple times in the book Indian Killer by Sherman Alexi. Hmm. Yeah, so that's a true all-American hero. Yeah, that's I understand why you like him so much now. He's really cool. Yeah, and I just love the fact that he didn't understand why he was famous mm-hmm. but also yeah you were famous for a great reason yeah like super humble guy yeah i also see his story as a way that america fails their veterans i was ju- i yep i was yeah. just thinking that he he should have gotten help he could have gotten help and easily yeah like Ugh. that of all veterans wow yeah what a move america Mm -hmm. but on top of the fact like this is a native american man who also came back i think it was shell shock at that point Mm -hmm. is what they would call it and you could see that he was struggling and he also not only had issues but he also relived his issues by playing himself in a movie. Yeah. Ugh. I have such mixed feelings about that. Can you imagine triggering much? Like I wonder. Ugh. I don't know if that's healing or if that's hurting. I don't yeah. know. I just have mixed feelings. That's like asking for an abuse victim to go play an abuse victim in a movie. Like, mm-hmm. it just, oh Yeah. It's f- fucking wild, honestly. Yeah. But Ira Hayes, an American 
fucking legend. Mm -hmm. And happy to tell you that the Marine Corps raising the flag, one of those men is Native American. Oh, so cool. I know. (laughs) Okay, so next one. Charlene Teeters. She is a Spokane activist. Spokane. Oh, is it Spokane? No, I just, it reminded me of a TV show. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where they all I was went, about to be like, Spokane. No, you're, you're, it's Spokane. You're good. Okay. <laughs> was, yeah, okay. Just ignore me. <laughs> you made me question my <laughs> No, you're good. It all good. <laughs> you know, honestly, I was like, oh man, I did fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So she's a Native American artist, activist, educator, lecturer. Um, Her paintings and art installations, they've been featured in over 21 major exhibitions. No big deal. Wow. Yeah. Also in commissions and collections. She's a member of the Spokane tribe, obviously. But what she is a major activist for and why she really made my list, even though being that legendary of an artist was good enough is that she has actively been opposing the use of Native American mascots and other imagery in sports since 1989. Yes! Yes! What a queen! She is a founding board member of the National Coalition on Racism in Sports and the Media, the NCRSM. Did you know that existed? I was literally going to be like, who would have thunk? (laughs) Who would have thunk they thought that up? Right? Uh, so they have succeeded in having eight schools and universities change their mascots. So That's awesome. here's how it all started for her. So in 1988, she w- began graduate studies in the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. Oh yeah, Urbana Champaign's Department of Art and Design. Eventually, graduating with a Master's of Fine Arts degree in painting. Nice. Yes, girl. In 1989, she reacted strongly to the performance of a pseudo-Native American dance by a European-American student. I love how they phrase that. Pseudo. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, I'm reading this one word for word because, like, everything about this is as jarring as it should be. Yeah, I just, oh, the image in my brain. Yeah. I want to barf already. Yeah. Oof. Okay. But they were portraying Chief Illinowek. A university ba- at a university basketball game soon after. Blah. I don't know what my sentence meant, but we're going to keep reading it. <laughs> so she soon after began to protest silently outside athletic events while holding a small sign reading, Indians are human beings. Ugh. So her actions and those of other Native American students at the University of Illinois, such as Marcus Ammerman led to the strong upswing in efforts to eliminate Native American imagery in the school, university, and university athletics throughout the United States. And a film was produced on the subject. That film oh. is in Whose Honor and was done by Jay Rosenstein. Huh. Yeah. Teeters was also the first artist in residence at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Wow. Yes. So she's an artist and an activist and a legend. It's hard. Again, a trifecta. Yeah, I was like, it's hard to not just be amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so this one many people may know. 
Who knows? So Maria Tolchief, she was hmm. an Osage Prima Ballerina. Oh. So Elizabeth Marie Betty, she went by Betty, Tolchief, <laughs> was considered America's first major prima ballerina. Wow. She was the first Native American from the Osage Nation, which is in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, to hold rank, as it is said, and is said to have revolutionized ballet. So almost from birth, she was involved in dance. At three, she started formal lessons. When she was eight, they moved from Oklahoma to L.A. Oh, where I live. <laughs> you know, this place. You live there too, right? Uh, no. I'm up north. I'm in the Bay Area. Oh, she's in the Bay Area. Yep. She pays more rent than I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. Plot twist, guys. We only know each other online. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. You know, the plot chickens. The plot chickens. I, I've never gotten over that typo i sent i don't can't remember who i even sent it to but i bought two chickens from ikea (laughs) and they're over our tv and then i did a little painting that says the plot chickens oh my god that's epic that's a keeper yeah it cost me five bucks (laughs) sometimes you just need chickens on your wall Mm -hmm. absolutely my yeah my house is weird (laughs) um so where was i oh they moved to L.A. to advance her career and that of her younger sister, Marjorie. Um, so at age 17, she then moved to New York City in search of a spot with a major ballet company and, at the urging of her superiors, took the name Maria Tellchief. Hmm. Because Elizabeth wasn't good enough? Wow. Okay. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> Namist. So she spent the next five years with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Mm. And then she met choreographer choreographer George Balanchine. When Balanchine co-founded what would become the New York City Ballet in 1946, Tall Chief became the company's first star. Nice. The combination of Balanchine's difficult choreography and Tallchief's passionate dancing revolutionized the ballet. Her 1949 role in The Firebird catapulted Tallchief to the top of the ballet world and established her as a prima ballerina. Her role as the Sugar Plum Fairy in The Nutcracker transformed the ballet from obscure to America's most popular. What? Yeah. Who would have thought that role would have ever been obscure? <laughs> I know. Or that ballet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Like at all. Yeah. Could you imagine not having. Yeah. No listeners thankful for that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I used to. As a family, we used to go and watch the Nutcracker every Christmas up by. We have like we live near a community college and they did a really good rep- uh, rendition of it every year. I mean, I sing a really bad rendition if you want me to sing it at you. <laughs> Because I know you're going to miss doing that. Yeah. Just oh put me God. on speakerphone. I, it's going to be my new text tone from you. Yes! Um, but, <laughs> unlike me, Maria Tolchief was incredibly talented. <laughs> I'm like, where are you going with this one? 
I'm segueing back to the story. Nice, nice. She traveled the world, becoming the first American slash Native American to perform in Moscow's Bolshoi Theater. Bolshoi Theater? My bad. She made regular appearances on American TV before she retired in 1966. After retiring from dance, Tolchief was active in promoting ballet in Chicago. She served as director of ballet for the Lyric Opera of Chicago for most of the 70s and debuted the Chicago City Ballet in 1981. So Tolchief was honored by the people of Oklahoma with multiple statues and an honorific day. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, which I did not know existed, and I want to be in it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not doing so well. (laughs) And received a National Medal of Arts. Isn't that amazing? That's a thing? Yeah. So it's like the Medal of Freedom, but the Medal of Arts. Epic. I know, right? Yeah. So in 1996, Tall Chief received a Kennedy Center Honor for Lifetime Achievements. Wow. Her life has been the subject of multiple documentaries and biographies that I am going to ingest <laughs> as we continue this pandemic. But she did pass away in 2010, and mm-hmm. I find it incredible. Like, she was gorgeous, she was dedicated, and she lived, like, an incredible life. That's so cool. Yes. So, our next person, who I also, like, kind of want to be when I grow up. She says at 29. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wilma Mankiller. I was waiting for the, this. This yes! is literally. Okay. I don't know a ton about her because my mom kept trying to tell me when I was telling her about, like, what we were going to talk about. And she goes, let me just tell you about Mankiller. And I was like, okay, mom, I'm pretty sure it's probably going to be on her list. So don't tell me everything because I want to be surprised. She goes, but I want to. <laughs> So you can, like, walk into the room and be like, let me tell you about Wilma Mankiller. <laughs> so she's a Cherokee politician and activist, had phenomenal hair most of her life. I mean, I don't know about her primary years, but as an adult, loved the haircut. So, and that's not a joke. I judge people by their haircuts all the time. So... <laughs> That's good to know. It's my favorite thing about watching like '90s television. First thing I'm gonna comment on. Haircuts. Oh my god! Oh, that just oh, I'm getting a flashback to all the awful Buffy haircuts. Oh my god, I love it. But oh. also, have you watched Supermarket Sweep yet? No, like the old one. No. Oh, it's on Netflix. Oh my god! Watch it's going for on my the list. haircut. It's going on my list. Or like murderous affairs. The haircuts are phenomenal. Oh my god. Anyway, let's talk about the legend Wilma Mankiller. Yes. Timeless. Wilma Pearl Mankiller. Oh, I want that last name. So I was bad. just going to say that's an... Oh, the last name. Oof, I mean, gold. I do have the last name Fury, but at the same time, Mankiller. Man, yes. Oh! Yes. Okay. Yeah. She was an American Cherokee activist, social worker, community developer, and the first woman elected to serve as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Yes. So... For five years, in the early 70s, which I realized I could have said 71 to 75, or 70 to 70, yeah. <laughs> Doing she, <great. laughs> she was employed as a social worker, focusing mainly on children's issues. Uh, she returned to Oklahoma in the fall of 76, and she was hired by the Cherokee Nation 
as an economic stimulus coordinator. So with her expertise at preparing documentation, she became a successful grant writer and by the early 1980s was directing the newly created Community Development Department of the Cherokee Nation. So as the director, she would design and supervise innovative community projects allowing rural citizens to identify their own challenges and through their work, be able to participate in solving them. So she has a project in Bell, Oklahoma that was featured in a movie, forgot to write it down. And then she had a project (laughs) in Kenwood (laughs) (laughs) that received the Department of Housing and Urban Development Certificate of National Merit. Nice. I know, right? And this is before she's done, she's principal chief. Like, she's just director. She's just the director, damn it. And she's like slaughtering over here. Not slaying. She's man-killing. She's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she is. So her management ability came to notice of the incumbent principal chief, Ross Swimmer. Not Schwimmer. Ross yes. Swimmer. Who invited her to run as his deputy in the 1983 tribal election. So the duo wins, and she became the first elected woman to serve as deputy chief of the Cherokee Nation. Nice. And it would take 40-something years for us to get a vice president. Oh, I was literally just thinking about her uh, <laughs> her speech, and I was just bawling through the whole thing. Yeah, don't worry. I cried through it. My shirt was wet. It was fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. <laughs> However, two years later, 1985. Swimmer, not Schwimmer, Swimmer, (laughs) took a position in the federal administration of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, so she got elevated to principal chief, and she would serve for the next 10 years. Dang. Yeah, so during her administration, the Cherokee government built new health clinics. They created mobile eye care clinics, uh, established ambulance services, created early education, adult education, and job training programs, and she developed revenue streams, including factories, retail stores, restaurants, and bingo operations. Yes, bingo operations. Yeah, think about it, because, like, bingo was a big thing back then. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it still is. Yeah, <laughs> who, who yeah. The fuck is t- who the fuck is talking? I would play the hell out of bingo right now. I. That actually sounds really fun. Yeah, like, I haven't... You could play online bingo. Yeah. Like with a group. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. I'm down. So she also established self-governance, allowing the tribe to manage its own finances. Wow. Yeah. So she does retire from politics. Uh, Mankiller returned to our activist role. She was a tireless advocate working to improve the image of Native Americans and combat the misappropriation of Native heritage. She authored, I think, several books, including her best-selling autobiography, Man Killer, A Chief and Her People, which nice. is an incredible name for an autobiography, and I'm going to yeah. buy it. I haven't read it, but I'm going to buy it. <laughs> and giving numerous lectures on healthcare, tribal sovereignty, women's rights, sorry, and cancer awareness and she had so like numerous health issues and she was still going for it and i am in awe 
of this woman. Like, what a badass. She's a badass native hero. Why do we not talk about her in school? Like, this is the kind of person I need to learn about. Yeah. In school. Well, it just reminds me so much. I don't remember who said it, but it's like that quote where they say, history is written by those who win or something. You know that? I yeah. didn't quite say it correctly, but it's like, it's that. Like, the people who won and the people who were at the top were white men, old white men. And so we learn about all the old white men. Like, that's See, all we learn about. Here's what, here's my perspective, is history is written by those who want to be in control. So mm. if you don't know about these people who can kind of circumvent the system Mm -hmm. and elevate the way like things can be done better then how do you know that you can do it if you don't know that you can do it yeah it's like those classic this is kind of like a sidestep but it's like in those movies where they always say no we can't allow the women to read because then they'll learn they'll learn they can overpower us like yeah that kind of crap exactly because if you think about it she was able to do so many things that we think of as just normal and this is 1985 yeah oh and so the fact that it wasn't already in place it should have been in place Mm -hmm. and she's like i'm not standing for this i'm yeah it should have been in place i'm gonna go put it in place Mm -hmm. and that's why i'm in awe of her she's not waiting for anyone to give her permission she's just gonna do it Mm -hmm. and that's not to fault anyone who came before her in cherokee government um it's to fault the federal government for not assisting mm-hmm. fellow Americans. Yeah. Basically. Exactly. So, continuing. <laughs> Badass man killer. Badass man killer. Okay, so, in Scott Mamaday, he is a Kiowa no- novelist. Hmm. So, Navar Scott Mamaday, novelist, short story writer, essayist, and poet. His novel, House Made of Dawn, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1969 and is considered the first major work of the Native American Renaissance. His follow-up work, The Way to Make Rainy Mountain, blended folklore with memoir. Mama Day received the National Medal of Arts in 2007 for his work's celebration and preservation of indigenous oral and art tradition. So he holds 20 honorary degrees from colleges and universities and is a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. What? 20. 20. Count that. Two zero. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So I wanted to tell you guys what House Made of Dawn was about. I just love that name. Yeah. That's a cool name. The cover is gorgeous. So, it's a 1968 novel, widely credited as leading the way for the breakthrough of the Native American literature into the mainstream. It was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it has also been noted for its significance in Native American anthropology. So, here's the summary. A young Native American, Abel, has come home from war to find himself caught between two worlds. The first is the world of his father's. Wedding him to the rhythm of the seasons, the harsh beauty of the land, and the ancient rites of the traditions of his people. But the other world, modern industrial America, 
pulls at Abel, demanding his loyalty, trying to claim his soul, and goading him into a destructive compulsive cycle of depravity and disgust. Wow. I know. I'm like, is this relevant today? Uh, oh. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yep. <laughs> That's going on the list. Yeah, for sure. To purchase from uh, Louise Erdrich's bookshop. Absolutely. Online sales must be open, please. Um, so, yeah, that's what I have on In Scott Mama Day. He did get, it's like the pre- the National Medal of Arts. I believe, like, President Bush was the one to award him. But no like, way. Yeah, there's a picture of him and everything. And he's adorable. Like, at the Aww. time, he's adorable. He had a bestseller in 1969. It's 2007, okay? Like, he looks like the greatest grandpa in the world. Oh my god, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, next, again, I stretched this one, but it's great. So, do you know who <laughs> Will Rogers is? Yeah. Such a basic name. I hope you know the same person I'm talking about. Oh, maybe not. Okay. Maybe I, I just ate my tongue. Try. Just, you go ahead. <laughs> I know. I'm, like, hoping there's not a Will Rogers. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Now I'm, like... The actor from the 30s? Yes. Okay. Okay, great. Then we're on the same page. I just realized that was like, it's a basic name. I can't help it. It's like a John Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because at first, it always confuses me because I'm like, danger, Will Robinson. And I'm like, that's Robinson. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So good. But I love this guy. I hope he was a great person uh, because he says some of the funniest things. Uh, (laughs) So he's a stage actor, a film actor. He was a vaudeville performer. He's a cowboy, a humorist, a newspaper columnist, a social commentator from Oklahoma. He was basically a, a renaissance man of being hilarious. <laughs> basically what I am <laughs> and what I wanted to be when I grew up, for real. Uh, he was a Cherokee citizen born in the Cherokee Nation Indian Territory. So before Oklahoma, I think, became a state. Wow. I know. Cool, right? Yeah. I don't know why that's cool, but it's cool to me. I don't know. But anyway, he was born in 1879 and died in 1935. So it counts. It counts in my hundred years. <laughs> but what I think so cool about him is he was an entertainer and a humorist, and he traveled around the world three times. He made 71 films. 50 were silent and 21 were talkies. Wow. And he wrote more than 4,000 nationally syndicated newspaper columns. So, by the. Yeah, I know, right? Oh. I know. 4,000. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I haven't done that. <laughs> I'm not even close. <laughs> but, I mean, granted, this is at the end of his life. So, I mean, he had a moment. Yeah, that's true. So, by the mid-30s, he was hugely popular in the U.S. for his leading political wit. And he was the highest paid of the Hollywood film stars. Wow! It was a Cherokee citizen! That's so cool! Um, He did die in 1935 with aviator Wiley Post when their small plane crashed in northern Alaska. We need to learn this. Small plane's bad idea. Yeah. This is not the first time. Well, maybe chronologically, but not the first time we've heard it. (laughs) So Rogers' vaudeville rope act led to success in the Ziegfeld Follies, which I believe 
is what's featured in Funny Girl. Um, <laughs> and led to his like first of many movie contracts. In the 1920s, his syndicated newspaper column and his radio appearances increased visibility and popularity. Rogers crusaded for aviation expansion and provided Americans with his firsthand accounts of his world travels. Wow. I know. Like, that's really cool if you think about it. Yeah. So he had earthy anecdotes in folksy style, which allowed him to poke fun at like gangsters and prohibition and politicians and government programs and like any controversial topic in a way that like people weren't offended by. Like mm-hmm. he would excuse me, I hiccuped. <laughs> Guess what, everyone? I hiccuped on camera. Uh but he would get general acclaim from a national audience and some of his aphorisms were just really couched in like that humorous specific term. Mm-hmm. So one of them was like, I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That's still good. I know it's, it's still that. Yeah. That one killed me. Um, <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, one of his most famous sayings was, I never met a man I didn't like. And he even provided an epigram on this famous epigram. So he goes, when I die, my epitaph, or whatever you call those signs on gravestones, is going to read, I joked about every prominent man of my time, but I never met a man I didn't like. And he's like, I'm so proud of that, I can hardly wait to die so it can be carved. <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> All right. And I'm like, oh my god, I feel this guy so hard. Oh my god. I've made so many jokes about that. <laughs> oh my god. But I have met so many men I don't like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's why I'm a little like, what? <laughs> no, I think I get it. I think I get what he means, though. He's like, I never met a man I didn't like. Like, you know, like, there's a circle born every minute. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's how that's I accurate. take it. That's accurate. Yeah, notice he said man and not woman. Oh yeah. <laughs> or human. <laughs> or person. Man camera TV. What? That <laughs> <laughs> never gets old. <laughs> oh god. Oh god damn it. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to our twelfth person i almost said victim and i was like what show am i on oh wait <laughs> that is applicable just not the episode. where am i <laughs> who am i what is this so we're gonna t- so you know michael jordan right oh yeah so he's considered the goat right the greatest of all time basketball player mm-hmm. but he was not the goat in baseball right yeah that's why space jam was made yeah <laughs> It's his return to basketball. And honestly, everything I know about basketball is from Space Jam and the Super Nintendo NBA Jam. Oh, my God. You know, don't kill me, but I've never seen Space Jam. First of all, we're fixing that. Second, (laughs) it's one best picture like 10 years in a row. What are you doing? I know. It's just... I know enough about it, I feel like, because everyone I know has seen it, and I've just never had the desire to really watch it, because I could care less about sports. (laughs) See, it's not that. It's not about the sport. Mm -hmm. It's about 
Michael Jordan okay. and the Looney Tunes. Yeah, that's that was the only reason why I was like, yeah, I'll watch it for the Looney Tunes. Because I still roughly know how to play basketball. <laughs> I understand the ball goes in the hoop. I am five foot tall, so I am the shit at basketball. I like, am five And foot not two. in the good way. Okay, cool. And I am an excellent cheerleader. <laughs> and by excellent, I mean not. <laughs> <laughs> and by excellent, I mean sitting in the stands and drinking my coffee. <laughs> I No, I didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in college, I did not go to a single sport ball game. Oh, sport ball game! <laughs> Not a one. Sport ball. That's epic. Ooh. It encompasses everything. I went to school in Montana, so that it's very move. yeah. <laughs> it's very rednecky. So I mean, it in the best way out there, if that could be a thing. Everyone was super nice, but they were very into their sports. I went so. to school in Arkansas. Oh, nice. So. uh the opposite yeah really into their sports and there's guns yeah there were guns there too but the the thing that was weird to me about everybody out there is how sweet and polite and nice they were because i just didn't expect that but they actually like cared about their neighbor what's that like i know it was weird like i remember the first time i tried to go through a crosswalk i was like oh i'm never gonna get across this crosswalk because i mean california you don't you can't (laughs) you have to run you have to dodge if you can dodge a car you can dodge a ball right so <laughs> so like <laughs> okay i'm sorry that compound left <laughs> right but like so i'm like shit i'm gonna be standing here all day first car that sees me stops and waves at me and says hi good afternoon and i was like what the fuck is happening i need to run because i'm freaking out <laughs> yeah and then everyone holds the door open for you it's just it was so weird i remember the first time i went back to arkansas to visit my brother robert who is probably mentioned in every single fucking episode of the show. <laughs> my brother robert's eight years older than me and so i go back to visit and i borrowed his car i was like hey can i borrow your car and he's like are you still licensed and i was like yes in california and i was he was like but what if you get pulled over i'm gonna and i was like i'm gonna do the same thing i did in texas when i got pulled over i'm sorry i didn't know i couldn't do that because i really didn't right right (laughs) but anyway i i started i was driving somewhere and i did not realize how aggressive i drive oh my god until i was driving down i-40 because where he lives is off of i-40 and Mm -hmm. i was such a dick and i was (laughs) feeling it i was like shit or get off the pot people move And Robert was like, you got there so fast. And I was like, yeah, I did. (laughs) I really did. (laughs) But, okay, sorry. We digress. I digest. (laughs) Uh, Besides me being the goat of driving in Arkansas and Michael Jordan being the goat of basketball, we have someone who is the goat at football, baseball, and basketball. What? So basically, the most versatile athlete of modern sports. This man, his name was Jim Thorpe. He is an American athlete and an Olympic gold medalist. And he was a member of the Sac and Fox Nation. And he was the first Native American to win a gold medal for the United States. What? 
I don't know if there's been another Native American to win a gold medal for another country, but they specified. <laughs> so he won Olympic gold medals in 19, the 1912 pentathlon, 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 <laughs> and decathlon. <laughs> yep. Yep. Then... He lost his Olympic titles after it was found out he'd been paid for playing two seasons of semi-professional baseball before competing in the Olympics, which violated the amateurism rules that were then in place. And then in 1983, 30 years after his desk, they restored his medals. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's some bullshit. But I was like, that's a thing? I didn't know that was a thing either, but it's not anymore. Okay, good. Uh, yeah because not that's dumb it's like there's so many good athletes out there who don't aren't in like major league stuff like what the crap yeah i was like but this this was in 1912 okay yeah good point so in 1920 to 21 he was nominally the first president of the american professional football association the apfa which became the nfl in 1922 he played professional sports until age 41 and the end of his sports career coincided with the start of the Great Depression. So Ooh. we're going to start talking real here. <laughs> he struggled to earn a living after that, working several odd jobs. He suffered from alcoholism and lived his last years in failing health and poverty. He was Aww. married three times, had eight children before suffering from heart failure and dying in 1953. Oh, my God. And this is actually something that's happening today, especially in the wrestling uh, industry is that a lot of wrestlers they basically get churned out in a similar manner of course the great depression was a cause for jim thorpe but they won't be able to work anymore because wrestling is so demanding whether mm-hmm. or not like you're like oh it's scripted well you're still doing the thing yeah and they will have so many health issues and they don't cover Uh, health insurance for wrestlers and so when they're churned out they have severe health issues and what other skills do you have you know unless you're the rock and you go on to make movies but um and they end up dying really really young yeah and so i believe you know jim thorpe potentially was someone who fell into that category you know like ended Mm -hmm. up with a lot of injuries due to playing professional sports especially that at the time that they didn't have the safety um rules put in place Mm -hmm. and then on top of the great depression and all of the problems that come with that and on top of alcoholism and being in poverty like in failing health yeah it's tragic that this all-american hero and like a triple goat gold medalist Mm -hmm. couldn't find help and ends up you know the way that he did and so this is a, a like even though he's an incredible person at the top at the bottom it's a real indicator of our failing system Mm -hmm. and how we should kind of be arm in arm to make sure people don't fall through like that 
Yeah. And not just because they're Olympic gold medalists, but it's more of like even an Olympic gold medalist fell through. So like who else is falling through? Yeah. But we'll go back to the happy side. Uh, So Jim Thorpe received various accolades for his athletic accomplishments. The Associated Press named him the greatest athlete from the first 50 years of the 20th century. And the Pro Football Hall of Fame inducted him as part of its inaugural class in 1963. So a Pennsylvania town was named in his honor and has a monument site that contains his remains, which were the subject of illegal action. Oh. Um, so Thorpe, like his, like, um, his concept, uh, appeared in several films and he was portrayed by Burt Lancaster. Like, I get he's dreamy, but they don't look anything alike. Yeah, it seems uh, weird. Like, Jim Thorpe, he's, he's hot, like, but he's different. He's rugged. And Burt Lancaster's, like, hard eyes, softy. Uh, but huh. in the 1951 film, Jim Thorpe, which n- he saw no money from. Ugh. So, weird. Because if he saw money from it, why is he uh, in poverty? Yeah. Ugh. So, that is Jim Thorpe. I encourage you, if you're a big sports buff, to look into him because he was a cool dude. Sounds like it. Yeah. I, I have to admit, though, at the beginning when you started talking about Michael Jordan, I was like, don't you dare tell me he's Native American. I did not <laughs> see that coming. <laughs> I know. I wanted to see if I could get you. And then... I know. I was like thinking about I'm like, there's got to be more to this. <laughs> like, I did not see that plot twist. Oh, I love it when the plot chickens. <laughs> there it is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So next we have Billy Frechette. She Ooh. is Menominee, and she's a bank robber and singer. What? Yes! <laughs> that is a great combo. <laughs> so, Mary Evelyn Billy Frechette. So, she's 1907 to 1969. Was an American Menominee. Menominee. Sorry. I fuck up. A Menominee. An Menominee. I am that person. I'm like Simonin. <laughs> like Menominee. And I'm gonna. I'm telling you. <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't. Um, singer, waitress, convict, and lecturer. Ooh. Known for her personal relationship with the bank robber, John Dillinger. In the wow. early 1930s. Let's talk about her. <laughs> so she was half French. Hence, Frechette. Okay. And then. I bet you it's just Frechette, but I like Frechette. <laughs> Frechette? But <laughs> she's known to have been involved with J- Dillinger for about six months until her arrest and imprisonment oh, in 1934. Pesky imprisonment. She, yeah, I know. Dear God. <laughs> so she had, I'll tell you the rest of that in a minute. So she met Don, Don Gillinger. Don't, 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 John Dillinger at a cabaret in November of 1933. They began a relationship soon oh. after that. She, uh, Frisha was quoted saying, John was good to me. He looked after me and bought me all kinds of jewelry and cars and pets. And we went places and saw things. And he gave me everything a girl wants. He treated me like a lady. Oh. Oh, yeah. So she assumed more marital roles. 
with Dillinger than an accomplice. Mm. But she, she did once drive a getaway car after Dillinger was shot by the police. Oh, there it is. Yep, there. Mm-hmm. So she's a bank robber. <laughs> <laughs> she is now officially a bank robber. And legend. Uh, she was arrested April 9th, 1934, for allowing him to hide in her St. Paul, Minnesota apartment. And for obstruction of justice. Obstruction. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of, but I was, I'm glad you did it. Okay. <laughs> John Dillinger, or Dillinger and a companion watched the arrest from a block away. Dillinger oh, wanted to- What a att- dick, and he didn't help? Oh, well, I'm about to tell you. Oh, okay, sorry. I jumped That's the fair. <laughs> uh, Dillinger wanted to attack the lawman and rescue her, but oh. accepted the argument that he would die in the attempt. Oh. I mean, he does die anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> so she serves two years for violating the federal harboring law. She's released in 1936. At that point, John's dead. Oh. Um, she does tour the U.S. with Dillinger's family for about five years with their crime did not pay show. And she does return to the Menominee. I did it. Indian Reservation, where she was born for a quieter life in the later decades, married a few dudes, and then in the film... Married a few dudes. (laughs) I want that to be in my bio. (laughs) I haven't done it, but just, you know, I'm there for their money. Hmm. Uh, In the 2009 film Public Enemies, she was played by Marion Cotillard. I don't know how I feel about that. She is half French, but like... Marion Cotillard. I'm sorry. It just it makes me think of that SNL skit with um Kate McKinnon playing like an old uh, actress, and she's like talking about the old Hollywood days, and Marion Cotillard was there, and like uh, Margot Robbie played um, Kira Knightley, and it was just oh my god, she was just talking about how bad it was in the old days for women actresses and she's like yeah and then they forced me to marry a chimp and you know what they paid me in brooches and then in the end of it the chimp stole my brooches <laughs> just okay i'm sorry i just i had to say that <laughs> marion cotillard anyway <laughs> that was all i had for her oh darn it <laughs> just ignore me we're gonna move on to our next person we only okay. have two left i oh. hope we're making good time uh, yeah i have no idea at this point um <laughs> <laughs> Stole my brooches. Oh, okay. Look it up, guys. It's good. I'm gonna trust her on it because I'm gonna look it up after this. Oh, it's so good and it's so bad and racist. But they call uh, Lupita Nyong'o is in it. Uh, one of the SNL stars plays mm-hmm. her, and she she says, "Oh, hey, little Peter, no, no." Oh my god. So bad, but it's because her old character from like 1912 or whatever is super racist. So like. <laughs> It's just, it's really What is bad. Saturday Night Live doing with their lives? I don't know, but it was, honestly, it was one of my favorite skits. It was, uh, and I love Kate McKinnon, so. But anyway, <laughs> next person! <laughs> okay, so we have Rita Coolidge, and she's oh. a Cherokee singer. So Rita Coolidge is an American recording artist. So during the 70s and 80s, her songs were on Billboard's pop, country, adult, contemporary, and jazz charts. She's won two Grammy Awards with fellow musician and then-husband Chris Christofferson. Her recordings include Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher. I think huh. there's like a... But that's that's a Jackie Wilson song. 
Um, yeah. Maybe they did like a cover. Okay. Anyway, we are all alone. I'd rather leave when while I'm in love. And then she did the theme song for the 1983 James Bond film Octopussy. Oh damn! All time high. Huh. Yeah. So personal life. Coolidge embraced her mixed heritage through her musical career. So her father was a full-blooded Cherokee. This is all what I've read. Mm-hmm. And her mother was half Cherokee, half Scottish. Oh. So her sister, Priscilla Coolidge, and Priscilla's daughter, Laura Satterfield, all created a trio of, sis- of singers called Walela, which oh. is the Cherokee word for hummingbird. So the group was founded in 1996, and they have won a Native American Music Award. Wow. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of cool to toss in, like, you know, a lady singer. <laughs> but, yeah. So, Rita Coolidge. I didn't know who that was until I was looking at people that I might not know. Yeah, that's... Um, I just... The last name reminds me. I, I've heard Coolidge before, but I don't Calvin? Think. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Coolidge, that president Coolidge. Guy? Yep, that's it. Okay, good job. <laughs> And I'm really bad with history. <laughs> our 15th and final. Are you ready? I'm ready. Buckle up. I'm buckling. His name is Alan Hauser. And he's yeah, a no. Chiricahua Apache artist. Oh. He was a sculptor, a painter, a book illustrator, and from Oklahoma. He oh. was one of the most renowned Native American painters and modernist sculptor- sculptors of the 20th century. So I'm about to tell you a whole buttload about him. Okay. Just buckle in. So his work can be found at the Smithsonian, at the National Museum of the American Indian, the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., numerous major museum collections throughout North America, Europe, and Japan. And I believe there's a a piece, at least in the Japanese royal collection, Um, Hauser's offering of the sacred pipe is on display at United States Mission to the United Nations in New York. Hmm. So, after World War II, Hauser applied for a commission at the Haskell Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. So, Haskell, um, a Native American boarding school, lost many graduates to the war and wanted a sculptural memorial to honor them. So, though Hauser had been carving in wood since 1940 and he had never sculpted in stone... Um, he convinced the jury, the jury with drawings and his conviction, and he was able to complete it, a monumental work called Comrades in Mourning from White Carrara Marble in 1948. It has become an iconic work, both for the artist and for Native American art in general. So I hmm. highly recommend you looking it up and seeing it. It is gorgeous. So... Hauser retired in 1975 from, like, regular life work, and it marked the beginning of his most prolific stage of his art career. Because with time, materials, and then he had, like, a family house in South Santa Fe County, um, Hauser honed, like, his visual language and basically fused like native subject matter with the abstract forms and sculptural voids of his modernist teachings wow yeah so it's 
like his works are incredible. So Hazard carried the mantle of both Native American and modernism to new levels, and bringing forth such memorable images as the lead singer, abstract crown dancer, and the mystic. So those are three that you can look up. If you're driving, please don't do that. Hauser <laughs> uh, also continued to produce remarkable figure, figurative pieces as well, including the life-size bronze work uh, Chiricahua Apache family dedicated in 1983 at the Fort Sill Apache Tribal Center in Apache, Oklahoma. The piece honored both the memory of his parents, Sam and Blossom, and commemorated the 70th anniversary of the release of his tribe's prisoners of war from Fort Sill. So he was fortunate to be the kind of artist who did not need to be discovered after his death because he enjoyed a career where he was able to create not just for his own satisfaction, but for an appreciative public as well. Hmm. On his death, the honors kept coming. Among these were the installation of 19 monumental works of art in the Salt Lake City during the 2002 Olympics and a retrospective of 69 works at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. in 2004-5. The exhibition marked the first major show of that new museum, and over 3 million people viewed it while it was on display. Wow. So in 2018, Hauser became one of the inductees of the first induction ceremony held by the National Native American Hall of Fame. Dang. So, yeah. He was a prolific artist, and, like, a lot of those pieces that you see that you think are, like, I don't want to say stereotypical Native American art, but that you will pick out and think, oh, this is Native American art. And mm-hmm. I know it, like, the one that looks kind of like a Russian nesting doll, mm-hmm. but is, car- like, hand-carved and has the beautiful Native American female face on it and her hair is, like, carved into it. Mm-hmm. That's one of his. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... That's 15 badass Native American heroes. Woo! For better or for worse. For better. For, yeah. So what do you think? I am blown away. Like, I'm happy and I'm sad. Like, I'm happy because I learned a shit ton. But I'm also sad because nobody talks about these people. Well, we did, and well, we can yeah. keep talking about them. That's, that is very true. But, like, and all of you listeners out there now know, too, and you guys can bring out that info so people know, you know? Because it's, like, ugh, it just frustrates me that nobody talks about these amazing natives, you know? Definitely. And I think it's most important that once you do learn about something, it's kind of your job, in a way, to keep sharing the information in a mm-hmm. positive and loving manner to your person. Be like, I can't believe you don't knew that, like, know this. Like, I can't believe. Blah, blah. Don't do that. That's yeah. awful. Don't be a dick. <laughs> like, that's elitist behavior. Yeah. When you learn something new, just share it and be like, hey, did you know about Wilma Mankiller? Can I tell you about this awesome person I know? Yeah. Consent's important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they don't want to know, they don't want to know. But, you know. <laughs> well. Like- they Some should. people need to learn to wear a fucking mask, but <laughs> that's different. There it is. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's uh, a great way to like share information is to be like, hey, I learned something new. Do you want to hear about it? Or 
share this episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I listened to an okay episode of a podcast <laughs> where they told jokes and told me about 15 badass Native American heroes instead of complaining about cramps. Actually, I'm going to complain about cramps. God damn it. <laughs> Just off the off the air. But um, nice, nice. yeah, I think that's a better way to spend Thanksgiving than engorging yourself on needless food and also thanksgiving is stupid and we shouldn't be celebrating it and we really we need to think our (laughs) rethink our holidays and why we celebrate them and why we celebrate them when we celebrate them well and and the sad thing about thanksgiving too is the fact that like nobody knows why we celebrate it anymore like i mean yeah i'm trying to say it's like we the reason why people celebrate Thanksgiving now is because, oh, well, I'm thankful for my family and I'm thankful for things. And it's like, but why was Thanksgiving created as a holiday? Like, and people mm-hmm. need to know that so we can stop repeating history, you know? Exactly. And also, they're like, well, we've done it for so long. Why would we change it? I'm like, mm-hmm. look, tradition is just doing the same stupid thing over and over for a long time. Yeah. The definition like, of insanity. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't celebrate Thanksgiving, but I will celebrate these incredible Native American heroes and the ones that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. The everyday heroes, Native American police and fire. I don't know if Native American police are better than regular police. I hope so, (laughs) because I hope that they work really hard towards finding the missing and murdered indigenous women, Mm -hmm. but also Native American teachers who are working to give opportunities to students who are growing up on reservations and that they're able to get the education that they want and deserve to have the opportunity to choose and things like that so Mm. there are everyday heroes not just these big names but um i say big names very loosely (laughs) (laughs) um but do talk about it this Mm -hmm. could be if you're gathering with your family for a zoom call it could be something great to talk about and be like, hey, I learned something. Let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because the more we talk about it, the more visibility we can give this community and the more that we show that we care mm-hmm. and that we, this is why we share stories of black community, of the Latinx community, of different Asian communities because we need to show that we have the empathy and the oneness with each other mm-hmm. that we can share stories that we've heard that we've learned about and heroes and such they don't have to be forgotten in this yeah. way yeah i it just reminds me a lot of um i don't know if any of you listeners out there have heard of buffering the vampire slayer it's a really great podcast but if you're a Buffy fan out there, you know one of the um, loved and hated episodes is the Pangs, the Thanksgiving episode from um, season four. And they did a great episode on that, just talking about how not so good that episode was, when the way that they showed Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And they talked quite a bit about that, and they brought in um, a woman, her name is uh, Koya White Hat Artichoker. And she talked a lot about the Native American representation in that episode. And um, she also talked a lot about, because she helped with the um, 
Standing Rock uh, thing that was going on in the Dakotas, mm-hmm. and um, and she wrote a poem about it, and it was like I cried when I heard her poem about her protesting and stuff and just Mm -hmm. it was it just people need to talk about this stuff and don't yell about it don't get mad at people for this stuff and how they don't understand just talk that's how we have to communicate so that we can get that heard you know be allies right and you can't know something until you know it the first time and Mm -hmm. i believe if there's a maya angelou quote where she said you can't be upset at yourself for not knowing what you didn't know Mm. And I hope I quoted her properly. I'm going to be embarrassed if I didn't. But once you know something, it is your job to share it. And Mm -hmm. so this is why we're spending this month on Native American heritage and history and also Native Hawaiian. But we, I say we as in the grand office of myself, (laughs) I feel like it's incredibly necessary with Black Lives Matters um, being so prevalent um, that we also look at some of these other things that haven't been able to gain traction mm-hmm. because Absolutely. Black, yeah, Black Lives Matters is incredible. I'm a huge supporter and I want it to be something that stays. Like I don't want it to be a movement that fizzles out. It's mm-hmm. change that stays. But also the same changes that Black Lives Matters will bring, I hope also translates to the lives of Native Americans who reside not only in the city, but in reservations um, and in rural areas. Because it's no joke. Yeah. Like, the percentages of crime are ridiculous. The percentages of missing and murdered Indigenous women are ridiculous. And... I feel like when we talk about the issues, but also some of the positive parts, it's not, or I'm sorry, it is the way that we can start inciting change. Mm -hmm. And it is a way that's tangible for those of us who don't have money to give and don't have we don't live somewhere that we can just go and help, mm-hmm. but we can say, Hey, did you know about all this stuff? Hey, did you know about all this stuff? Hey, did you know? Mm-hmm. And we can be a voice to the other non-native Americans um, to spread stories, to spread truth because they're not going to teach it in school. I yeah. literally looked at a textbook that said the Native Americans gave their land away and I wanted to set it on fire. Oh my god. So, oh. and this is not new. Like a lot of people are aware of these problems. So it is a school problem that you're facing and if people have been taught this, we have a lot of unlearning to do. Yeah. And so, um sharing these incredible badass Native American heroes is a great first step into showing that Native American people are not only like, I don't want to say equal because they've always been equal, but they're not treated equally, Mm -hmm. but that they can achieve incredible things. Mm -hmm. They're just never given the chance to. Even then, it's like a lot of people 
see them as lesser than and mm-hmm. that's not true absolutely yeah it ugh. and so the like if you feel like you can't do anything to change it share positive representations mm-hmm. of native americans that's the best don't don't appropriate appreciate mm-hmm. um and share positive re- representations share these heroes share the great things that are happening and that's i don't know that's my conclusion i want to draw from this yeah so. i agree wholeheartedly absolutely i don't know i feel like that was a big old merry-go-round to get to that <laughs> i was on the ride <laughs> it worked i'm gonna go to post and be like that made no sense <laughs> um but yeah any last comments you wanted to make leslie no i think you summed it up really damn well oh well thank that, you that was also very good grammar so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for being on the show leslie it was delightful yeah. to have you well thank you for having me i had a blast excellent I'll trick you into being on another episode soon. (laughs) Sounds great to me. All right. Well, this has been the 15th episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. And we have discussed 15 of the most awesome Native American people that I looked up. So (laughs) (laughs) next week or something, there's going to be a mysterious episode drop. Because I still owe you guys one from election week. Woo! So, (laughs) it'll happen when it happens. And, yeah. This podcast will be moving in to original music by Miranda Miller. So, feel free to. You can find us both on Twitter and Instagram at Talk About Facts. We have an outro. T A L K A B T. So, we'll see you next week. Or email recommendations to ltatfpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe out there, friends.